0: The Student Voting Network podcast is produced by students at a national level. The views expressed in this podcast are not reflective of any organization affiliated with the Student Voting Network.
1: Welcome to the Student Voting Network podcast. We've got a really special episode today where we are talking about the state of voting in the state of Pennsylvania. My name is Benjamin Nixon and I use he, him pronouns. I'm a member of Campus Vote Project Student Advisory Board. With me today are Nick Bartell, Campus Vote Project Democracy Fellow. And also with me is a colleague on Campus Vote Project Student Advisory Board, Sarah Harmon. How's it going, Sarah?
0: Hey, I'm not too bad,
1: how are you? You know, I'm recording a podcast, so things are going pretty well for me right now, I got to say. Nick, can you tell our listeners a little bit about your work in the Pennsylvania student voting space?
2: Sure. So I'm a junior at Washington Jefferson College in southwestern Pennsylvania. And this past year, at least with uh, 2020, uh, as with people seen across the country, has been very interesting and definitely very changing in how we vote across the country. Uh, In Pennsylvania, in particular with Act 77, uh, this has allowed us to kind of move to more of a mail in ballot um, approach. And this, we didn't like, out of all time, this was the time that we needed this because a lot of our students on campus were using this method since about 50% of our campus uh, was actually off campus uh, due to um, only having one student in each of the uh, residential hall rooms. So yeah, that was definitely really important for us uh, to have access because a lot of students are registered um, at the campus uh, like for being uh, like voters there. And it was also something that we were trying to do, at least with uh, the voting coalition at Washington Jefferson College was we were trying to uh, make sure that students were not only registered to vote, but also educated. So we actually had a a student voter forum uh, where we uh, were brought in people from all across the political spectrum to talk about where they kind of stood on the issues and allowed uh, students as well to participate and kind of listen to see which side they agreed with more. Uh, we also uh, helped with orientation as well with the first year students coming in. Uh, we did a lot of work to kind of provide them with who's on the ballot and what do these different positions do? Uh, and moving forward, we're definitely looking into uh, talking about why the courts are very vital. As we saw at the 2020 election, um, they helped to defend democracy uh, whenever the legislature and the executive branch were unable to. So that's something that we're definitely looking forward to and Um, Once again, I'm just excited to be here uh, and continue this in the Pennsylvania space.
1: That's awesome. And I couldn't agree more, especially to the point about um, the judiciary really upholding a lot of what we recognize now as American democracy. So I I totally agree with that. Um, And Sarah, maybe if you could talk to our listeners a little bit about your work in the Pennsylvania student voting space.
0: Yes, of course. So I am currently a senior at the University of Pittsburgh, and a lot of our efforts this past year were centered around similar to um, what Nicholas was saying um, making sure that students were well educated and making sure that they were filling out their mail in ballots correctly and sort of understanding the process for all of that and making sure that it went smoothly for them. Um, Luckily, being in the city of Pittsburgh, we had a bit of an advantage for the students who were planning on voting in person because they had free access to public transportation via the bus system. So a lot of our focus was more so on those mail-in ballots because those are typically a bit more difficult for students to figure out how to execute and how to mail them in properly. So a lot of our efforts were focused on that sort of education, along with making sure that the students themselves were registered in the first place. Um, So those were probably our main two areas of focus the last year. Um, And now we're just sort of working on ways to keep up the momentum and making sure that students are still remaining um, active voters even on what is quote unquote, the off year to many students. But as we all know, it's still very crucial to be voting in these as well. Um, And we're also going to be creating a voter ambassador program here at the University of Pittsburgh that's in the works to sort of target students who may not be in majors that are typically known for high voter turnout Such as a lot of stem majors and we're going to be finding ways for students to engage with them, whether it's in class or through different clubs and organizations to try to motivate them. To go out to the polls and vote so i'm doing a lot of research entailing that to just ways to engage with. sort of stem students and other students who don't typically turn out to vote and sort of get them to do so. So that's pretty much the extent of my work right now at Pitt, and then we're just constantly trying to find new ways to innovate and new ways to engage with students just get them civically active.
1: Engaging STEM students, it's really funny you mention it. I always know like when I'm running a tabling event or when I'm doing a voter registration drive, you can almost recognize the engineering students by the scowl they give you if you ask them if they're registered to vote. So, you know, if you are an engineering major, uh, please be kinder to the people who are trying to get you to register to vote. We're just doing what we think is right So, you know, the former Attorney General, uh, Eric Holder, he once stated that the future of Western civilization depends on Pennsylvania. And in our estimation, he was not being too dramatic about that. I think I speak for most Pennsylvanians when I say that the importance of our vote has never been more laid bare, especially during last year's election cycle. And so I want to ask you both before we start diving into some of the legislation we'll be discussing Um, Sarah, what was the student voting experience like for you on Pitt's campus? So specifically, did you vote and how easy was it?
0: So for me, yes, I did, of course, vote. Um, It it was easy for me because I personally did my mail-in ballot, so I had already submitted that and mailed it in in advance. But speaking on behalf of the students who were voting in person on election day, I know that was a lot more difficult for them, specifically because we didn't have any sort of campus holiday dedicated to going and voting. So on um, that on that election day, I was helping out um, with a local campaign and I was over there just sort of sending out canvassers. And we had an exam that I had to do online just in the middle of election day at like 2 p.m. And that was really hectic because it was a class full of about like 150 kids. So that was me along with 149 other students who had to take about an hour and a half out of election day to go and take an exam in the middle of the day. So that's kind of the biggest issue that I've been seeing with um, voting specifically on election day on our campus is just the fact that we don't have any sort of legislation, I guess I would say on campus that prevents students from having to go to an exam or having to go to class. I think that there should really be a lot more effort towards giving students that time off to go and vote. Um, So that's probably the biggest concern I had with um, Pitt's voting experience.
1: Yeah, for sure. And, and that definitely mirrors a lot of what we hear not only on this podcast, but also in the student voting network more broadly, which is to say, um, professors are scheduling exams on election day, or there are not any specific like designated days off on election day and that can really make it um, quite difficult for people to engage and I just want to shout out to my alma mater of the Community College of Philadelphia, which specifically closed shop on election day in 2020 and allowed for um, students, you know and professors staff, everybody in between to get the opportunity to go out and vote. Um, So Nick, I'm curious, maybe what was it like on your campus? What was the student voting experience like for you?
2: At WNJ, uh, I think the biggest thing that we had was a lot of student participation. In um, it was not just within the voting coalition, but kind of once we kind of got that drive going, and there was a lot of hype going into the 2020 general elections and even into the primaries, just because of how significant of an election it was. Uh, we had a lot of our clubs, Greek life, um, they all had a competition for like 100% voter registration, and they like posted on their social media that 100% of our members are registered. I I know that a lot of our Greek life uh, houses were 100% registered. And then there was another push um, for 100% voter turnout. And because that's really the the important thing is, well, yes, it's very important for people to be registered. If those registered, people don't go out to vote, that's going to be very detrimental because you essentially lose the impact of registering is to say, I want to vote. Moving forward, yeah, uh, I think kind of like what Sarah was mentioning, uh, definitely talking about having a voting holiday. Um, I know that whenever I was at the Students Learn, Students Vote um, gathering this past December, that was something that was a very big topic that was being discussed, was having those holidays where it's not necessarily a day off, but a day on, of making sure that our, uh, whenever we have election day, to teach about This is what it means to be registered to vote. This is what it means to vote. This is why your vote matters. Because I think something that's very common is, at least across the country, is we're coming into a situation where people are saying, well, why does my one vote matter? Whenever we have millions of votes cast. So that's something that we were trying to push is look at all of these cases across the country that have been determined by very, very small margins. And especially voting on the local level, because we also had things going on on the local level as well, talking about, okay, your local level is going to impact your day to day kind of life a lot more than looking at kind of that macro level of looking at the president, looking at um, the senators, because you're talking about, okay, your school taxes, that's your school board, all the potholes in your road, that's politics. And I think kind of to the point of talking to engineering students, kind of looking down on uh, like all the voting, uh, voting work that we've been doing, I would say taking voting and applying it to their majors as well because whenever we have things like like I mentioned potholes that's politics and people like oh I'm not really into politics it's bringing people into politics saying everything is politics whether you like it or not how much your schools are being funded how much you're having to pay on taxes that's all politics so even like your uh, FAFSA your student aid that's politics that's what you need to vote for and so that was something that we were trying to push on campus was it's more than just who's, who's sitting in the Oval Office.
1: So really good point to localize the political, I guess, lens for students who often do feel disconnected from Washington and you can't really blame them. Um, and so I totally agree. Conversations about tuition, FAFSA, things of that nature always remain relevant, I believe in this, not only topic, but also in this space. And as a result of the national spotlight that Pennsylvania received in this most recent um, election, we wanted to discuss some of the bills and legislation that came out of the Pennsylvania State Legislature and how those bills impact student voting both locally and nationally. So, in this episode, we'll be running down a few bills and discussing those bills. So there are a lot of bills we're going to talk about, but for starters, I really wanted to dig into two of them, which is House Bill 623 and House Bill 366. So House Bill 623, it, it would essentially allow for voter pre-registration at the age of 16. And it would also foresee automatic registration, which would occur as soon as somebody turns 18. Now let's just stop and recognize that pre-registration should not be all that controversial. When you consider the fact that being able to keep a clean voting role is one of the most important things to many secretaries of state and elections officials, knowing who is going to be on that voter roll eventually very shortly is a really useful way to prevent voter fraud and also helps to make sure that people's facilitation into the voting space is more seamless because I think we all um not only people who are in this episode but more broadly students and certainly people who have tried to register to vote it can be a total labyrinth and it can be really difficult to actually discern not only where to go to register but how to ensure that your registration has gone through. So really voter pre-registration at the age of 16 is um, an insurance policy for democracy because what you're really doing is you're making sure that people as soon as they're 18 become registered to vote and there's not any hoops that they have to jump through. What's more, this bill would also create what's known as a Constitution and Citizenship Day for schools to develop civic-related programs and actually just have voter registration available to all students. One of the most important aspects of this bill, I guess in my estimation, is that there's this sort of cliche of youth voter political apathy. And that could probably be eliminated if high schools were actually mandated to provide more meaningful and constructed civics education. Polls, which you may or may not trust after the 2020 election, they tend to find that anywhere between 20 to 36% of American adults are unable to name all three branches of government. That is not only a student voting issue, that's also a democracy issue. And a Constitution and Citizenship Day alongside voter pre registration, um, that is a student voting issue. And we are all students at some point in our life, no matter how begrudgingly. So, really, pre registration, in, in my opinion, it would have a tendency to normalize conversations about voting at an earlier age. It would also perhaps eliminate some of that apathy, which emanates from the overarching lack of discussions, which are centered around voting. And finally, voter pre-registration is just an effective means of advancing the student vote and making people socially responsible for voting and remaining informed on issues. There's no downside. To voter pre-registration at the age of 16. There's no downside to automatic registration occurring when a voter turns 18. These are positives. But I'm wondering, maybe, Sarah, what your thoughts are about this specific bill and whether you think it's um it's appropriate.
0: Yeah, Ben, I'm in complete agreement with what you were just saying. I I really like the line that you had where you referred to it as an insurance policy for democracy, because I think that sums it up basically perfectly. And um yeah, no, I know whenever I was 16, I really, luckily I was really into civics, so I, I was obsessed with civics class, so I had a bit more of an understanding, but all the people that I was surrounding with, nobody really had that sort of grasp of what actually came out of elections. I'm sure that I didn't even myself. I was a 16-year-old who took one civics class in an American history class. So I think that having those conversations a lot earlier can be very, very beneficial for high school age students just starting those conversations in the classrooms and having that um, day dedicated to it basically it shouldn't just be a day it should be more than a day obviously those conversations should be continuing after that but um, yeah I think it really does set up students and the youth
1: vote to be on the right track. And Nick what are your opinions about HB 623?
2: Yeah, I completely agree with both of, of what you just said. Um, yeah, because 16 um, is, I mean, whenever I was 16, 17, that's when I was taking my AP uh, government and politics course in school. That's when kind of. All across um, my high school, we were taking either um, just regular government politics, honors, or AP. So those students are already getting that education. And like you said, they're going to be able to name all three branches of government and dive deeper into that and be able to understand, okay, th- this is what each of these positions do. This is who my current senator is. This is who the president is, and kind of diving more into it. And if we essentially create this as more of a, it's not just one, a one and done type Type deal That if it's a reoccurring thing, uh, that there is that uh, Constitution and uh, Citizenship Day, uh, like this bill wants to introduce. Yeah, this would be a great idea just to kind of reiterate, uh, I know at my school at Washington Jefferson College, we have our Democracy Day, where we talk about the importance of not only being a good citizen within your community, but also on the global stage, which this could also tie into of, let's look at what it means to be an American.
1: My favorite kind of echo chamber is one that uplifts democracy. So I'm just glad that both of you agree with my assessment of this and and definitely that we're all in agreement that pre-registration and Constitution and Citizenship Day, they are just really important. So that then leads me to my second bill that I'm really interested in in talking about, which is HB 366. Now, this is sort of a a broad bill, so I'm going to try and break it down point by point. For starters, it's going to increase early voting in such a way where early voting would begin 30 days before the election. Polling stations would be open from 7 a.m. until 7 p.m. Now, I just want to stop here. This offers more time for people who work multiple jobs, maybe are attending college, maybe are attending trade school, whatever the case may be. They have a full 12 hours to vote in the 30 days leading up to election day. That's really important. That offers accessibility to people who work. And let's be real, most of us have jobs. Whether we are flipping burgers or whether we are knocking on doors, it doesn't really matter what you do. You have a right to vote if you're 18 or older. And so it's really important for people to exercise that right. And the longer that polling stations are open, the more likely people are to just get out. So you can probably tell by how much I'm standing this bill that I really do think that increasing early voting uh, to begin 30 days before an election is integral. But what's more, and and this maybe gets more to what we saw in 2020, it offers more time for elections officials to audit the election while it is ongoing and securely facilitate elections in a continual manner. And to me, as people are casting ballots and as information is being provided to um, elections officials that their constituencies are participating in the election, it's more likely that they're going to be continue to be vigilant during the election. And this is something that we're going to talk about a little bit later. And certainly there are other episodes that we'll be releasing nearby where we're going to be talking about some of the questions of the validity and the eligibility of ballots and elections that occurred in Pennsylvania. But it's going to give elections officials more time to audit the election while it's ongoing. Then more broadly, HB 366, it would require early polling places based upon population density. And so for 250,000 to 500,000 people, there would be a mandatory three polling places. Now that's people, not necessarily voters, but let's just bear in mind that three polling places for 250,000 people would just be a fantastic mandate because it really does give a large population center the opportunity to have its citizens not wait in line for multiple hours on an election day, combined with the fact that you would have already had a 30-day lead up to election day. What's more of between 100,000 to 250,000 people would receive two polling places, and 100,000 people or less would receive one polling place. So really what it's doing again is it's offering a state-mandated amount of people who are attending polling places and having those polling places accessible to a certain number of people in a way that would effectuate democracy in these population centers. Finally. And perhaps most importantly, it would begin counting early voting ballots 14 days before Election Day. Now, one of the problems we saw in 2020 was that many of these early ballots were not counted until I believe it was Election Day itself. And that really led to a significant slowdown in the reported results. Some people demanded that the count stop on the night of election night, uh, which certainly had a chilling effect on democracy. And we just can't stop counting ballots just because we know that when all the votes are counted, we're gonna lose. Like that's that's completely against what democracy actually stands for. And by giving elections administrators the tools they need to effectively count ballots and offer an election that is more accessible over a period of time, that's going to really make the actual election execution itself much more seamless. And seamless elections are what we should all really be asking of our elections administrators and our legislatures. Nick, what are your thoughts on HB 366?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's a very important piece of legislation, because like you were mentioning, it's not only addressing kind of expanding that access, uh, but it's also talking to make sure that places that are more heavily populated, like the city of Pittsburgh or Philadelphia, um, have enough voting uh, places for people to attend. And it's also going to allow and kind of decrease that time, like you were talking also about um, of waiting, of that weight game of how we saw with Arizona, how we saw Pennsylvania, how it took quite a while. And that's because of that restriction that you were just talking about. And if we have that, that decreases the amount of time uh, that we can start to have these conspiracy theories of what are they covering up? What are they hiding um, to start to spread? I know that um, approaching Uh, the election day, I was talking with um, our state coordinator of Chuck Black uh, about this, about this uh, particular issue. And he was telling me that that there was a very common concern of we need to um, start to kind of debunk these conspiracy theories that are going to happen in between election day and whenever we finally certify all these uh, ballots. Because uh, I mean, he forecasted this really well, but this was issue. This was an issue that ultimately uh, led to the January sixth um, insurrection on the Capitol. Uh, like we were just ta- we were talking about in our uh, very first episode here on SVN Cast. Like all of these things kind of play together, and it was it. This would help to kind of reduce this uh, down the line in the future. And Sarah, what do you think about HB three sixty six?
0: Yeah, I completely agree with everything you both said already, but um, yeah, just to elaborate more on what Nicholas was just saying. um, So basically, I understand like that sort of psychological factor that goes into the amount of time it takes to certify votes after election day. Like I, I can understand how a lot of people would have a sort of fear, a lot of sort of conspiracies sort of rising up the longer it takes to certify votes. While I would agree that the Uh, election process was fair, I understand that there is that level of uncertainty and that level of fear that comes out of just taking a lot of time to certify those. So having this 14 days in advance um, certification, these early countings can definitely eliminate a great, if not all of that stress that comes along with having to wait that long. So I think that's a complete benefit on that part. And also, again, just coming from the city of Pittsburgh, where there are or even the Allegheny County, County in general, when there's about 900,000 registered voters, I believe, um, having those extra polling places for early voting is going to be a huge benefit. Just people who have time in 30, like between 30 days before to election day, they have time to go over and um, cast their ballot. It's definitely going to be beneficial to everybody involved in that.
1: I could not agree more, especially when it comes to the validity of elections, just making sure that it's done more quickly, more effectively. Again, there's no downside to this. There's no downside to counting votes faster, sooner. And so Sarah and and Nicholas, both of you also did a little bit of research into other uh, House bills. And so I'm just curious what you all dug up, starting with you, Sarah.
0: Um, yeah, I'm going to go ahead and hop on into House Bill 1270, if that's okay with you guys. Um, so basically, I'll go through the different parts that I kind of, there's a part of this that I agree with, and there's a part of this that I am not 100% sure where I stand, and I would say I more so fall semi against this one part of it. So I'll start with the part that I am fully agree in agreement with first, um, and that is in regards to the permanent mail and voting list. And this basically states that all qualified voters are automatically placed on a permanent mail-in ballot list file. And so basically what that means is that any qualified elector can be removed from the permanent ballot list, but that's on their request. So it's sort of an opt-out system as opposed to an opt-in. So that just makes it a lot easier for um, registered voters to be able to get that mail-in ballot so that it's not necessarily something they have to go out of their way to acquire. It's more so directly provided to them as is their right. So it really eliminates that process for them and makes it a lot easier. And that seems to be in relation to um, the issue that we've had, especially that we've been seeing in Ohio with the vote purging. Um, And for anybody who's not familiar with that on, I believe it was January 20th of this year, Ohio purged about 97,000 voters who um, did not cast ballots for um, consecutive years or who did not respond to notices that were asking them to update the registration. And those people are eligible to be removed from the um, voter rules just to maintain kind of um, active voters. If somebody has passed away, then they'd be removed from the list as is the normal um, removal process. But this created a large problem because it can often disenfranchise many voters who were not aware that they were purged from the voting rules. And they show up on election day and they're not eligible to vote anymore because they've been removed. And then due to the fact that many states don't have same-day registration, they are unable to vote. Um, And so that has been kind of a recurring problem over the years in regards to voter purging. So this seems to be a sort of way to combat that. Um, And I completely agree with that. I think that's a great idea to um, have those mail-in ballots sent to individuals, unless they do not want want them. Um, So going forward on this bill, um, it also states that an application for official mail-in ballots shall be on physical and electronic forms prescribed by the Secretary of the Commonwealth. Um, And physical application forms shall be made available to the public at County Board of Elections, municipal buildings, and other locations designated by the Secretary of the Commonwealth. And this goes forward to say that no private organization or individual can send an application to an elector. Um, It has to be the Secretary of the State of the Commonwealth. Um, and so this is kind of where I get a little bit iffy on where I stand on this, because I personally, I am very heavy on um, Pitt Vote, which is um, University of Pittsburgh's organization towards trying to get students to go out and vote. And it would be really beneficial if we were able to send out those applications to students, um, if we were able to provide them with that. But at the same time, I also understand um, sort of where they're coming from with this bill. So it's a little bit murky for me. Um, But I'm going to read off this memo that was sent out by Representative Joe Webster, who is a Democrat who sent it out to all the House members. Um, And basically, his argument was that eligible voters were left really frustrated and confused by having multiple mail-in ballot applications sent to them by these third parties. And a lot of them did not really ensure the accuracy of their mail-in ballot applications, so it led to sort of outdated or just regular inaccurate Um, pre-filled information. So sort of their argument is that it's more centralized if it's coming from the Secretary of the Commonwealth as opposed to these third-party organizations. Um, So the one solution that I would kind of propose to sort of compromise between what I'm feeling and what they're feeling is perhaps providing some sort of licensing so that you can have like authorized third parties send in this information and send in these applications to students. That could be one option for that, but if you guys have any others, I would love to hear your thoughts.
1: Yeah. So let me just say, I am skeptical of vote purging. I just want to get that (laughs) right out the gate. I don't think that that's really an effective means of securing a voter role. Let's be real. When you commit election fraud, they are going to lock you up or they are going to hit you with a hefty fine. Um, And it's a really limited amount that you can gain from committing voter fraud. And certainly there are copious amounts of books and research papers that have been written on the myth of voter fraud. So and we'll have resources to that in the episode description. But to your point about um, third-party registrations, I'm with you, Sarah. I kind of see it both ways. And as someone who is a, a third-party vote registration guy, I definitely am sad that they would want to take that away from me and take that away from the work that Campus Vote Project and many other affiliates are doing in the space. Um, And so to your point, I think licensing does make a lot of sense because really what you would be doing is you'd be getting permission from um, the Secretary of State. The only place that I start to get a little skeptical about is if you get a Secretary of State who is autocratic or undemocratic, and then they can wield that licensing in such a way as to um, prevent third-party registration agents that they don't approve of. Why they may not approve of those individual groups, um, I could only sort of hypothesize, but certainly I think you have a good idea with the um, licensing of a third party registrant, registrar. It's just one of those things where I do worry about who absorbs that power (laughs) and then how do they abuse it? Like that's where my mind goes immediately.
2: I would agree with with both of you on that. Uh, I mean, a potential solution is something that we can also, uh, we've seen pushed for uh, redistricting is to have a nonpartisan committee being created and that's their like it's their commissioned job to okay your job is to approve these third party organizations or um you would have to potentially file as a nonpartisan or a partisan organization um and have those separate designations of like with campus vote project where you are a nonpartisan organization or with SEEP nonpartisan organization, but if you have like the young Democrats, young Republicans, young libertarians, whenever we ha- you have those different groups, they would have to register as a partisan organization. And there would also need to be very, and in my opinion, there needs to be very, very strict regulation on... Uh, ensuring that the ballots that are being sent out are actually legitimate and actually could be filled out because you could have one party sending another party illegitimate like absentee uh, registration uh, forms and essentially have them send in false ones. And then you have that giant confusion being created among one party. And because of the fact that um, voter rolls are public information, it's really easy to kind of go down, okay, let's find every single Democrat or every single Republican in these key districts and send them the wrong ballot and then create that kind of chaos or having external parties play that as well. Um, So it's kind of making sure that the ballots we are sending out, I am totally for, I don't think anyone on this podcast or anyone in SVN cast generally uh, will tell you that they are for insecure elections. So I think that we need to make sure that we do have secure elections. We make sure that we have a secure system. It's just making sure the thing that kind of gets me is making sure that we have a secure election that is accessible by all.
1: Bearing that point in mind, Nick, I'm wondering if you can walk us through maybe some of the House bills that you did a little bit of research on.
2: Sure, yeah. So I want to first dive um, into House Bill 621. This bill seems kind of like a kind of no nonsense. This makes sense. Uh, It's to introduce uh, braille accessible ballots for absentee ballots in particular. But before we kind of dive a little bit into kind of what the bill entails, I want to talk a little bit about why this thing even existed in the first place. So what kind of inspired it for this legislative session? So in 2020, there was a court case that um, reached the Pennsylvania federal district court. This was involving Drenth versus Bachfar. as a common joke we've had in our pre-production meetings is it's basically everyone and their mother versus Bokfar. We're going to see later on uh, in future episodes about how everyone, Republicans, Democrats, uh, in this case, uh, Bucks County resident Joseph Drenth uh, who's the vice president of the Pennsylvania chapter of the National Federation of the Blind, He's been, who's also been visually impaired since the age of six. He actually um, sued on May 21st, two weeks prior to the primary election, alongside the National Federation of the Blind. They both sued the Pennsylvania Department of State in federal court, arguing that Mail-in ballot and absentee ballot policies violated the Americans with Disabilities Act because it deprived uh, blind Pennsylvanians with the right to a private and independent vote through absentee or mail-in ballots because they would, um, because currently how Pennsylvania, or at least back then, how Pennsylvania ballots used to uh, exist was that it's essentially you're going to need a, another party to assist you completing those ballots or you need to go in uh, in person. The case uh, said that it, the plaintiffs also further argued that individuals with uh, vision impairments were put at, quote, an impossible bind of either voting privately or risking their well-being of to vote in person during the pandemic that we've all been living through since uh, March 2020. The Pennsylvania Department of State temporarily implemented an accessible write-in ballot for the primary election uh, two weeks prior, and the court uh, eventually uh, Basically, dropped the or closed the case uh, provided that the State Department would provide the relief requested by the plaintiffs of uh, Joseph Drenth and the National Federation of the Blind. So, taking a look at that, the impact on the 2020 election, just to see kind of how that impacted stuff before this piece of legislation was introduced, there was a national study looking kind of on the national scope of how. eligible voters with disabilities are at like their voting rates. Uh, there was a Rutgers study that showed that 49.3% of eligible voters with a disability voted in the 2018 elections compared to the 54% of voters who did not have a disability. Um, taking a look more Pennsylvania-centric, uh, there are 270,000 voting age Pennsylvanians who, um, who are blind or have a significant visual impairment. However, the Pennsylvania Department of State Had a contract to use a different method of omniballot. However, um, according to the source public source, uh, there was only fifty voters out of the two hundred seventy thousand voters that actually used this method. They found that whenever doing um, a polling of these individuals, there was a lack of voter um, usage of this method due to confusing instructions. There was a requirement of printing and mailing in the ballot as opposed to submitting the ballot electronically, or some just voted by person or through uh, mail-in ballot with a third party assisting them uh, because they found the system either too complicated or they just didn't know about this system due to a lack of uh, publicity. When NPR uh, interviewed Joseph Drenth in March 2021, he said that the new system that the uh, Pennsylvania Department of State uh, pushed out, which were still required people to print out that physical copy, it said, quote, they had to uh, print it out at the library. And you can just imagine trying to do something privately on a computer screen that's in a public place. So in uh, February 20, on the February 24th, 2021, Representative Markasek introduced um, House Bill 621, which would codify that court's ruling to protect access to voter rights. But looking at its current state, it's not even been um, introduced in committee yet, uh, so the likelihood of this piece of legislation actually moving forward, I'm not too confident with, especially since it has been since February that it's been introduced. Don't worry, this is not all a complete doom and gloom piece of legislation, because looking on more of the national scope, there's the Americans with Disabilities Voting Rights Act on the federal level, House Resolution 775, which if passed, it would mandate the same requirement, but across the entire country. And... Looking at something that's also um, going on across the country, uh, I know recently it's been Texas, is voter ID laws. And uh, Pennsylvania is uh, no stranger to this, this as well, with House Bill 853 as well as Senate Bill 422. I mentioned these bills are both almost identical, if not completely identical, just introduced by the House and the Senate. This is a very common practice, um, at least on the uh, federal level as well just to kind of push through the same piece of legislation so it doesn't necessarily have to go through as much reconciliation after these two have passed so uh for those voter uh, for our listeners here who are not necessarily super political nerds like um uh, just reconciliations whenever you look at the house and the senate bills see where the difference are differences uh are with both and basically try to come to a, a conclusion of where they both stand so kind of diving a little bit more into this this piece of legislation will require a photo ID to, to vote in any method in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. It says that acceptable ID must have an expiration date, except for um, Pennsylvania Department of Transportation documents that are under a year past this expiration date, military documentation that do not have a listed uh, expiration date, or um, identification that is provided by the state, federal, local governments, colleges, or care facilities. So, just kind of since this bill was introduced by a Republican and sponsored by Republicans, and since we have a Republican controlled legislature for our Pennsylvania listeners, due to previous court cases and uh, along uh, kind of going alongside this piece of legislation, if you are a college student, you can still use your college ID uh, to vote that's the kind of the most important thing out there is if you can you can still use your college id to vote in Pennsylvania. If you aren't able to uh, to present that photo id, you must present according to this piece of legislation two of the following. You uh, either a non-photo Pennsylvania id, a non-photo United States government id, a firearm permit, a utility bill, a current page, uh, bank statement, a paycheck or a government paycheck. Now, with these the name must, quote, sus- um, substantially conform to district records. Now, this comes into a couple of issues. Things such as um, people who hand write their um, registration, there could be an easy typo um, or flipping up on whoever's submitting this data in. And if it does not substantially conform, Which is a very, very vague term of what does it mean to substantially conform. You might have people who are disenfranchised simply because of a typo at the board of elections or for um, individuals who are trans and it's their dead name is currently on their voter registration, but they have switched with other IDs to their name. There, That would be a substantial uh, kind of that, – that would not substantially conform to the district records. So this piece of legislation would very much so um, disenfranchise many Pennsylvanians who may not necessarily follow within that substantially conform or even just through an accident. Now, taking a look at this, nationally, there was a AP and National Opinion Research Center with the University of Chicago in March 2021 that found that 72% of Americans support voter ID laws, with 56% being uh, Democrats, 91% being Republicans, and 72% being Independents. Now, taking a look kind of um, at where people see are an issue. 79% of Americans say that people who are eligible and not able to vote is either a major or minor problem. While 71% of Americans say people voting who are ineligible is a problem. So it's not necessarily, just looking at this data, it's not necessarily saying that Americans are saying we are super worried about people who are voting that are ineligible. Well, it is 71% and that is a huge percentage of the population. A lot more of Americans are saying people who are eligible or not able to vote um, and that kind of restrictions, those are the major and and or minor problems. Now the issues with voter ID laws nationally, the ACLU says that 11% of US citizens do not have government issued photo identification. Now that seems like a lot, I mean 11% of all, so basically one out of every 10 people don't have government issued photo identification. Uh, But this actually, if you break this down along racial lines as well, this problem becomes even more desperate for a need for change. The ACLU furthers that 25% of Black citizens of voting age do not have government-issued photo ID compared to the 8% of white citizens. A study from Caltech and MIT showed that minority voters are more frequently questioned about their ID compared to white voters. A 2014 Government Accountability Office report, just to kind of a note, the GAO is a nonpartisan government run organization found that strict voter ID laws reduce voter turnout by two to three percentage points. However, just to kind of clarify, there has been future future, uh, studies done uh, past that 2014 study that have shown that sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. But keep in mind, whenever you have these voter ID laws, we've groups such as Campus Vote Project, uh, uh, such as the NAACP that are actively doing this voter mobilization that uh, may have some impact on it, and plus these studies are kind of not necessarily super exhaustive as well for finding that data set because you can't necessarily reg- like uh, survey every single voter-aged um, American and voter eligible, and this. Uh, would also, voter ID would also require uh, people with uh, disabilities, uh, the elderly or people who live in rural areas without easy access to um, easy transportation to have to travel to receive that uh, photo ID. Now, photo ID laws in the past have actually been uh, explicitly seen for partisan purposes. There was an article from Politico in 2012 that found that former Pennsylvania Speaker of the House, Mike Terzai, was quoted in a Republican state committee saying, quote, "Um, pro-Second Amendment, the Castle Doctrine, it's done. uh, Pro-life legislation, abortion facility regulations in 22 years, done. Voter ID, which is going to allow Governor Romney to win the state of uh, Pennsylvania, done. Now that, of course, caused huge backlash across the national uh, scope because even before the age of Trump, where we have that voter kind of disinformation, before we see that um, extremely pop up, this is starting to happen for partisan usage. Now, just before we try to dive into this, is a very partisan thing. Just kind of show, uh, just to kind of tell what um, Representative Terzai's spokesperson said, just to kind of show the other side. Um, his spokesperson said, quote, Representative Terzai was speaking at a partisan political event. He was simply referencing for the first, t- or for the first time in a long while, the Republican presidential candidate will be on more in, uh, on a more even keel thanks to voter ID. Anyone looking further into it has their own political agenda. Now we've taken this common idea that we need to have secure and accessible elections and then have distorted them to benefit a certain party. Just kind of similar to how like redistricting has been used by both parties to create a narrative that benefits their own party. We're seeing something very similar happening here with voter access. We're kind of seeing two sides kind of divide into, we either need to have accessible elections or secure elections. That's kind of the narrative that's being pushed. However. There's a study done by USA Today um, from just a week ago, actually, that shows that people that most Americans don't want to prioritize one over the other. They want security and accessibility. Seventeen percent of Americans support um, prioritizing voter access over preventing fraud. Meanwhile, fifteen percent of Americans support preventing fraud over. Uh, promoting voter access. Now, looking at that from kind of a more of a partisan breakdown, 25% of Democrats say that they support supporting voter access over preventing fraud, while 10% of Republicans say that. Kind of going on the other one of supporting fraud over uh, voter access, 23% of Republicans support uh, preventing fraud over voter access, while only 11% of Democrats will. But looking at those numbers, it's under a quarter of Americans, even on the party that supposedly supports secure or accessible elections. But whenever we look at what Americans support uh, both highly accessible and secure elections, 64% of Democrats, 67%, sorry, 67% of Republicans, 73% of um, independents, and 70% of unaffiliated Americans with the top three um, political groups support having both highly accessible and highly secure elections so often we are presented with this false dichotomy of either having our secure or accessible elections but honestly it doesn't have to be either we can have a secure and a accessible election because a main argument against voter uh, voter uh, id is we need is basically we have a lack of access going on in these communities of color in these rural areas well the argument for is we need to make sure that people who are voting are who they say they are so i mean an easy solution here is we need to provide ease of access for these photo ids making sure that people with uh, limited transportation can easily access it making sure that people who can't take off work due to multiple jobs and they are working two three four jobs making sure they can have time to access it making sure that people who are living in rural areas can easily access it even for those who um have very limited transportation and with this we need to make sure that we have legislation that can actually make sure that people are paid to do this and with that i'm actually going to turn it over to sarah to talk about a piece of legislation that can do exactly that
0: Yeah, so now I'm going to get into House Bill 892, which is basically a proposal, and it was added as a, an amendment to the election code um, for paid voter time off. So I'm just going to go straight into this. So basically, um, the general gist in one sentence is an employee may take up to two hours off of work to vote on election day without a loss of pay. Um, and so I'm just gonna go over the limitations, uh, the prohibition, the verification, and the violations that are contained in this bill. Um, so the limitations are that it's only two hours of work that is allowed to be taken off per employee. The time off should be at the beginning or end of the regular shift, unless there is another mutually agreed upon time in which they're able to go and take off work in the middle of the day if the employer is okay with that and has consented previously. Additionally, the employee must give at least two days notice so that that they will need time off and approximately give around the time that they'll need off and come to that sort of um, decision with the employer. Um, The prohibition states that employers cannot ask questions about the employee's party affiliation or candidates that they voted for. And the verification is where Again, I get a little bit iffy on it because um, it says that written evidence of voting is required, and this has to be in the form of a signature or a stamp. And if a pl- an employee does not verify, the employer can make um, deductions from their pay as they deem necessary. I- additionally, with the verification, the employer has to display this um, bill basically where employees can see it no less than 10 days um, before the election day takes place. So I don't necessarily agree with the part where there has to be written evidence of voting required, where the employee has to show the employer. Um, Just because of the fact that where the signature comes into play, I could very easily see an employer kind of stating that it was forged to sort of say like, oh, you didn't actually go here. I'm going to deduct this from your pay because they didn't actually want to pay them for this time off. Additionally, it's also an added sort of weight on the shoulders of the voters having to go and certify it with another poll worker that they actually voted. It just sort of infringes upon their right to just go vote, leave, get back to work. It's just an additional responsibility that I don't believe should be enacted in this bill. Um, So that's kind of my biggest issue with that, I would say. But overall, I would say that this is an overall good um, bill in general. And uh, additionally, if Um, the employer does not give the employee this time that is required. Um, They can receive a fine between, I believe it's a hundred to $500. So it's a pretty hefty fine for the employer as well. So yeah, that's basically where I stand on um, this issue. And then I brought this up with a couple different people just to sort of see where they stood on this, like what their first impression was. And something that was really common um, was the question of what happens if this is a small business and they don't have a lot of workers, if they're going to like significantly be hurt by this to the owners if they have low staff. Basically, in from my point of view, I wanna get yours as well, you guys, but um, I think that the stipulation that the time off has to be at the beginning or end of the shift, and it has to be given in advance. They have to give advance notice that they're going to be missing, can provide the employer with a good amount of time to sort of make the necessary adjustments around this. So I personally think that that um, stipulation of the giving two plus days of um, notice on the employee side is an effective way to combat this. And I'm not sure if there really is a more effective way to do that. So that's kind of the general gist of things. If you guys wanna hop in and give me what your thoughts are, I would love to hear them.
2: Yeah, so I think probably the biggest thing with the signatures is signature matching. I know that we've typically seen that with like voter uh, access as well, that being kind of a stipulation. Because people who, like, as a former poll worker, we're not, like, trained people to look at signatures and kind of match signatures. And if, I'm assuming that these employers, most of them are probably not trained uh, people to look at the kind of the handwriting, those pen strokes, to identify forgeries. Wait, so, I thought
1: I thought you were a forensic document examiner, Nicholas. Oh,
2: yeah, no, that, that's my side job. Okay. Yeah, outside okay. of, yeah. Yeah, I mean, so it's... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, being a poll worker, it's really, really challenging because you're processing a bunch of people every day, and you might have these giant lines where you're processing people. So you might have to basically quickly sign that piece of paper, and that m- signature might not <laughs> match up perfectly. And even then, that could call into question. And I think there definitely is a lot of loopholes in here, like you were talking about, Sarah, of the employer saying, well, it doesn't look identical so we're not gonna pay you. Um, I think another issue is for residents who are also, a, a potential issue, a potential limitation could be, okay, well, I voted by mail, but I also have this coworker over here who voted in person but got paid for not doing work. How is that going, like, how is that fair? So I think that's something that definitely needs to be addressed should this legislation be introduced is how is it equitable for one person to vote by mail and still have to pay postage? And at least for registering uh, registering to vote is you still have to pay postage in Pennsylvania for at least registration. And But on this other end, this person is getting paid to work, or like this like person is getting paid to vote. Like, How does that kind of going in play, because I also know something that's like with election law, you are not allowed to like enforce or basically uh, like pay people or give people gifts to go vote. So I wonder how that's also going to play into a role as well of employers basically trying to get their workers to go to work. And if there would be any court cases coming out of this impacting this.
1: I think that if you have an I voted sticker, that's proof. Um, No, honestly, my my more serious answer here is I'm very skeptical of the government telling small businesses and businesses writ large what to do. I think that that is kind of an extreme level of... um, governmental overreach. So I guess you're kind of getting some of my personal opinions, um, personal political opinions as part of my answer here. But I am certainly skeptical pretty broadly of this idea that the government can, um, I don't know if I'd say force small businesses to engage in this type of action. I do think that it's probably easier for, um, to your point, Sarah, to have these requests for time off happening either two hours at the beginning or two hours at the end, that makes it way easier. But when you're looking more specifically at um, doing it in the middle of the day, or if it's a small staff, yeah, that's that's a problem. And I'm not really sure that this legislation is equipped in such a way to where it could really effectively assist or make it easy for smaller businesses to actually like help their employees vote i'm just skeptical overall of this bill
2: yeah and kind of going off your point there uh, ben about talking about like small businesses and not being able to do it there are places that also have like remote work across state lines so how are we going to enforce pennsylvania state law whenever your main kind of base because i um also am a uh, kind of a fellow with ballotpedia as well and they're based in Wisconsin and they have people all over this, all over the country. Like my boss, she's from Florida, but I'm up here in Pennsylvania and look, we got people all over the country. How are they going to enforce state law uh, nationwide? These are
1: these are good questions. And I think that um, the fact that this bill has even been suggest- suggested is really valuable to this discourse about, about voter law, voter registration, taking time to actually vote, to actually be engaged. So I really appreciate all the diligent work that both of you did in looking at these bills and also discussing with the Student Voting Network podcast today. House Bill 623, House Bill 366, 1270, 621, 853, and 892. And we're gonna have all this information in the episode description as well for our listeners. If you wanna learn more about these bills and sort of how they've been introduced, we'll definitely make that available to you all. So I just wanna go and thank you, Nick Bartel, for being here with the podcast today and also you, Sarah Harmon, for being with us today. It's greatly appreciated. Thank you both.
0: Yeah, thank you so much. I really love this.
2: Yeah, it's always it's always fun to talk with other politically inclined individuals. Every day, I mean, just love talking politics.
0: get involved with the student voting network podcast just email us at svncast at campusvoteproject.org one more time that's svncast at campusvoteproject.org thanks for listening and keep organizing